Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are on a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Crystal, and I too would like to just say hi to everybody today. Um, today's program is on older persons living with chronic lymphocytic leukemia, or CLL. And today's program is a collaborative effort with the CLL Society, and we're very delighted to be working with them, and you'll hear um, later on from um, actually from Patricia Kaufman, um, about the work that they do, and so helpful to all of you. Um, and we also are partnering with a number of other both cancer and blood cancer organizations as well as resources for all of you. And um, we are delighted to have so many of you on the call today. Um, we have on the call today over 415 participants on the call today, and you come from all of the United States, um, from different parts of the country from both urban, rural, and suburban areas, and we also have international participants from Canada, Colombia, India, and United Kingdom, so this really is a bit of a global call as well, and we welcome all of you to the program today. And today's program is supported by an educational grant from Janssen Biotech, Inc., administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC, and we really thank them for their support of this program. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker, and our first speaker is Dr. Jennifer Brown. And Dr. Brown is Director, Chronic Lymphocytic Leukemia Center, Senior Physician, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, Harvard Associate Professor of Medicine, Harvard Medical School. And Dr. Um, Brown will be addressing overview of older persons living with chronic lymphocytic leukemia, or CLL, current standard of care, and communicating with your healthcare team about quality of life concerns. It's really now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Brown. Well, thank you very much, and I'm happy to again be able to join a cancer care teleconference to talk about CLL. Now, as we know, CLL is chronic lymphocytic leukemia, and it's a fairly common cancer. About 20,000 people a year will be diagnosed with it in the United States. And this particular call is focused on older persons living with CLL. And we, it should be noted that that's most people with, living with CLL because the average age at diagnosis is about 72. And then people live for a long time, often before treatment even. And so by the time people may have treatment, they may even be significantly older than that. And so it is an older patient population who have CLL in general. Now, how is one diagnosed with CLL? Well, oftentimes it's just on a routine physical or a routine doctor visit for some other reason. It's noticed in the blood that the white blood cell count is a little bit high and that this is due to one particular type of the white blood cells called lymphocytes. And so we can send a diagnostic test just on the blood to establish the diagnosis of CLL. And oftentimes that may be all that we need to do, in fact. Sometimes people will turn up with a lymph node, which can feel like a little grape or sort of lump in the neck or the armpit, and that's often another way that we may diagnose CLL. If we don't see it in the blood in that case, sometimes a biopsy is needed. But in general, we don't have to do bone marrow biopsies anymore, and we often don't need any imaging unless there's some clinical reason to get imaging. And many times people have no symptoms when this is found, and so it, it may be a surprise. But that's a good thing, obviously. And oftentimes at the time of diagnosis, people have been living with it, in fact, for quite a number of years without it having been noticed. And that's something that I always like to point out to my patients because, you know, they've been carrying on with their life just fine while having this, not knowing it. And to expect that that may, in fact, continue even after the diagnosis. Other people, of course, may have symptoms at or soon after diagnosis and may then require treatment. The reason why we don't treat CLL at diagnosis is that although we have very, very effective therapies, mostly they don't cure the disease, we don't think. And so, and all therapies have some side effects. And so in general, we don't treat people who don't need treatment. And, and that's actually been studied where people were assigned a diagnosis to be treated versus to wait. And 
this didn't have any effect. In fact, there were more side effects in the people who were treated sooner, where the people who were observed did very well. Now, that continues to be the case even now. We still don't have any data to suggest that there's a reason why we should treat people earlier, even as we have effective therapies, oral therapies, uh, that can be quite well tolerated, but they do all have side effects. And we also know that people whose disease remains stable while they're being observed, oftentimes it doesn't evolve in a more treatment-resistant direction while it's being observed. Whereas once therapy has started, sometimes that starts a process where the CLL can evolve and get a little harder to treat over time. So still, if you don't need treatment, we don't treat you. So what does it mean to need treatment? Well, so the reasons why we do treat people are if there are symptoms that are clearly due to the CLL, which this can often be hard to figure out. Sometimes people are tired just from regular life, and how much the CLL or is or isn't contributing to that may not always be clear. And so if fatigue is an issue, I always try to do a detailed evaluation of other medical causes, drugs, other issues that could be contributing to that as well as evaluating the CLL in terms of how much disease there is, is it progressing, to try and understand what's contributing to the fatigue before would decide that that was a reason to go ahead with treatment. Now, reasons why we definitely treat are if the blood counts, the normal blood counts, the red blood cells, or so-called anemia, or the platelets which clot the blood, if they're low, or the red blood cells are low, then we will treat the CLL to clear out the bone marrow and help to make those blood counts return to normal. Because we know if they're low over time, then that can cause fatigue, that can lead to transfusions that are not good for the body if we can avoid them, which we usually can by treating the CLL. And so that's a very common reason why we treat people. Sometimes lymph nodes that are growing, those lumps or bumps, can be another reason why we treat people. Sometimes one thing that we see in a relatively small percentage of people with CLL, but we do see it commonly enough, is where the person's own immune system attacks the blood cells most commonly, the red blood cells or the platelets, and then that can often end up leading to treatment of one type or another to quiet that down. But many people do quite well after diagnosis without needing treatment, living their lives, and sometimes there's a process of adjustment to the idea that, you know, the white blood cell count is high, you have the CLL, but fortunately, you're coexisting with it peacefully. There are a couple of things that I always ask people to do or to start paying attention to when they're diagnosed with CLL. One has to do with screening for other cancers, because we do know that we see a somewhat higher incidence of some other cancers in people with CLL. And skin cancers in particular are quite common in people with CLL. And so I always suggest that everyone go to the dermatologist and make sure they're getting a full skin exam and then follow up as needed based on the findings. But we do, that is a common issue for people with CLL. And then I usually recommend that you do any age-appropriate cancer screening otherwise for other cancers, such as breast cancer, colon cancer, prostate cancer. I have also recommended that women be potentially checked with pap smears for the HPV virus because that virus I've seen reactivate also fairly commonly, uh, even though it was acquired decades before in the setting of CLL because the type of immune function that's required to control it sometimes can dampen down a bit. So that's something that I always recommend to people when they're diagnosed. And then the other issue is that there is a somewhat higher risk of infection. Even if you're not getting treated, there's a higher chance of being admitted to the hospital for infection. And so I always recommend that if you're feeling ill, you check for a temperature and that a fever can be a clear warning sign to be further evaluated by a doctor, make sure that there's nothing major going on. And while you are well, I do recommend that you get recommended vaccinations, including yearly influenza vaccination, pneumococcal vaccinations, including Prevnar and Pneumovax. And then, re so there is a new, relatively new shingles vaccine, uh, Shingrix, which is not a live virus like 
the old one was. And so that one is safe for people with CLL. We don't have data specifically on how well it works in the context of CLL, but I have generally suggested that that was fine for patients to get as well in the interest of trying to boost immunity, although we don't know for sure how well it works. And so those are some of the things that I suggest that people do following a diagnosis of CLL. And then while on watch and wait, you just get your labs checked and see your doctor at some interval. I usually see people most commonly every six months, sometimes every three months, but it isn't doesn't need to be that often if everything's stable. And so then what about treatment? So if the disease is progressing, as I, so sometimes what you'll see is that the white blood cell count will go up somewhat steadily over time, and it does that at some rate, which once we have a few time points, we can calculate that or figure out how quickly it is. And many times it will take two years to double, four years to double. It will change rather slowly. And so we can just follow that. If it starts to change much more quickly or starts to affect the normal blood counts, then that's when it comes to be time to start to think about treatment. Or again, if there's progression of the lymph nodes, like I mentioned earlier. And so what kind of treatments do we have? Well, we have traditional what we call chemoimmunotherapy, which uh, often contains an antibody, possibly with a chemotherapy agent. And some examples of that include, especially for older people, include bendamustine with rituximab or chlorambucil and abinutuzumab. And then we also have abrutinib, uh, which is an oral, tar what we call a targeted drug that inhibits a protein in the CLL that makes the cells grow and divide and controls the disease. And so we have increasing data about the potential benefits of abrutinib, especially in patients with higher risk disease. But it's kind of, it's a balance because, especially for patients with low risk disease, the, the chemoimmunotherapy can be given for six months and then the patient may be in remission for a long time not on therapy, whereas the abrutinib has to be taken continuously. But certainly for higher risk disease, the abrutinib will control the disease for a longer time. And we did have some more data on that at the uh, ASH meeting that happened a few weeks ago. But there are some issues with the abrutinib, the continuous therapy being one, certain uh, specific toxicities, especially with the heart or with bleeding, that can come up as well as drug interactions. And then the cost can also be hard for many people depending on their insurance. And so these are all factors together with the risk, the risk of the CLL, which we have a series of different markers we can look at that help us evaluate the risk of that CLL that would be potentially taken into consideration in thinking about the type of therapy for a patient. But all of them are potentially highly effective in low-risk disease. The highest risk type of disease carries a mutation called uh, 17P or P53. And that's a test that people should definitely have done before they have treatment, if they haven't had it done before. Because if that were to be present, then we really definitely think only of the abrutinib treatment first, that the chemoimmunotherapy treatments don't work well in that group. There's also another test that we increasingly use to kind of separate those subgroups as well, which is called the IGHV test, where people with the lower risk version of that can get good benefit from a chemo, whereas the higher risk version, we again tend to favor the abrutinib type of treatment. I think I can probably, oh, and then so communicating with your healthcare team about quality of life concerns. Well, and that also comes in with some of these issues I was mentioning about how the initial therapy is chosen as well. And so my patients and I always have a, a dialogue about this, about sort of the pluses and minuses of the different therapies and how they would work in their situation, how they would be manageable in, in their situation and what my thoughts are and what their best option would be. But their thoughts and preferences also come significantly into play in that conversation. And so that's important for the patients to think about. And then certainly once you've chosen and started on a therapy, 
it's very important that you let your team know about any new side effects or problems that you may have experienced or may be experiencing because they could be potentially related to the therapy or to some of your other medical problems in conjunction with the therapy. And the sooner that your medical team knows about that, the sooner they can make any adjustments or do any tests to try and make sure that everything is uh, potentially resolved for you in the best way possible. And in addition to your physician, you should definitely make use of the nurses and the mid-level practitioners in the practice who uh, will help. Even with the oral drugs, usually you get education sessions around how to take these, and I think we're going to talk more about that in the next section of the call as well. And so you have an opportunity to bring forward your concerns there as well. Okay. Thank you very much, Dr. Brown. That was really a wonderful way to start the call and really setting the stage for the entire program. So thank you. I know your questions for you during the Q&A. They're already coming in, so thank you. Um, And our next speaker is Dr. Shatra Ujani. Dr. Ujani is Associate Professor, Seattle Cancer Care Alliance, University of Washington, Division of Medical Oncology, CLL Lymphoma Group. And Dr. Ujani is going to present managing CLL when you have other health problems, taking your pills on schedule, does chronic illness affect CLL treatment options, and reducing harmful drug interactions. And um, it's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Ujani. Hi, everyone. Um, I'm excited to participate in today's call. Um, As Dr. Brown mentioned, over the past several years, the treatment for CLL has shifted from medications that are traditionally given by IV or into the vein to medications that are given by mouth. This provides convenience for you because you can take your treatment at home and don't have to sit in an infusion center for hours with an IV in your arm. You still have to go to the doctor periodically to be examined, to talk about how you're doing with the medications, and for lab tests, but overall it tends to be more convenient. The downside to this, though, is that you have to remember to take your pills and to take them on time. Um, People won't be calling you to remind you to take them every day. Um, The other thing to keep in mind is that most pills for CLL are continued indefinitely, um, so that's something you have to keep on track of or on top of along with your other medications. It's important to take the medications on time. You should know if you should be taking them with food or if it doesn't matter. Make sure you're drinking lots of water, especially with starting new medications. Um, And for some of the medications, your doctor might instruct you to take things like allopurinol, which protects your kidneys as well. Sometimes you may need some other supportive medications to help with nausea or diarrhea. Your doctor will likely have prescribed something for you ahead of time, but let them know if you don't have anything or if you're having issues as you start these new meds. Um, When in doubt, always ask your nurse or nurse practitioner or the pharmacist. Um, It's important to remember that if you're not taking your meds as you need to, it could result in the drug not working as well. You also want to remember to be open with your medical team if you miss a dose or if you're having problems with the medication. Um, If you're having side effects, let them know if you feel like you need to skip a dose or reduce it. Don't make those changes on your own. It's better that your doctor and nurse know what's going on so they can help guide you through the treatment. And as Dr. Brown mentioned, some of these medications can be expensive, so you want to be open with your medical team if you're having issues with the copay, um, if you're having a difficult time paying for your medications. Um, if it's causing problems with how you're taking, uh, taking your medications, your medical team should know. There's so many possibilities with, for CLL these days. Um, they can help you find an answer to it. I have a few tips that I tend to give my patients so they can remember to take their meds on time. They're pretty simple but seem to work. Um, A pill box is usually pretty helpful. Uh, You just have to load it up each week. Um, Another tip that seems to be helpful is uh, most of us have smartphones that we carry around with us, and setting alarms on those phones for the time you need need to take your medications can also be helpful, and also putting the pill bottle somewhere in a place where you go frequently. The next question I was asked to touch on is, do chronic illnesses affect your treatment for CLL or affect the options that you have available? As Dr. Brown mentioned, the average age for being diagnosed with CLL is around 70 years old. So many of our patients who are dealing with this cancer are also dealing with other chronic diseases like high blood pressure, diabetes, kidney disease, 
we as physicians recognize that these other medical conditions can affect the way you do with cancer treatment. Therefore, many of our big clinical trials are looking at these new promising drugs uh, that are looking at these new promising drugs are either focused on patients who are older or those with other medical problems. And I think Dr. Allen will go into this in more detail in the next session, but I'll just touch on a few of them. Um, for example, Dr. Brown mentioned abrutinib, also known as abruvica. This is a pill that is available for anyone with CLL. Um, in general, it's a well-tolerated medication. The most common side effects are some mild diarrhea, um, some mild swelling in your ankles, some fatigue. Bruising can happen. Um, more rarely, people can have some severe bleeding or an irregular heartbeat or um, even over time can develop hypertension. But in general, many people do quite well with the medication. And the benefit of this drug is that it doesn't have the same severity of low blood counts and infection as regular chemotherapy, like fludarabine or bendamustine. Given how well people do with this medication, there was a pretty large clinical trial looking at abrutinib, comparing it to an older drug called chlorambucil, which we previously mentioned earlier today. This trial was designed specifically for patients who were 65 and older and had other medical issues that made regular chemotherapy not a good idea for them. So it was focused specifically on folks with chronic conditions. And in the study, abrutinib won out. It was more effective, and it also won in terms of tolerability. Fewer patients had issues causing them to stop the abrutinib than with chlorambucil. So this is a new effective drug that's available for patients with other medical problems. Similarly, adelalisib is another pill that's approved for CLL. It targets a different pathway that drives a, ca a cancer cell. And it was also approved for patients with CLL who had other medical conditions that prevented them from receiving regular chemotherapy. By far, the majority of patients on the study were more than 65 years old um, and had other medical conditions. Now, adelalisib was given in combination with rituximab. Um, that seems to be the best way of giving this drug. The most common side effects were some fatigue, some mild nausea, and diarrhea. But we do know that some more severe um, reactions can occur. Patients can have inflammation of the bowels, the lung, the liver, um, as well as more serious uh, infections. So if your doctor is considering this medication for you, they're going to take into account whether if you have any lung or liver issues, um, if you've had any history of serious infections, and decide accordingly if this is appropriate for you. And then the last new medication I'll touch on is venetoclax. This is also another pill. Um, it targets a different uh, pathway uh, in the CLL cell, and it works actually quite quickly within hours to days. So when you start this drug, you're actually going to be monitored very closely, and it's important to listen to your doctor's instructions about drinking lots of water and just taking um, special medications to protect your kidneys. Um, they'll be getting your labs checked really frequently, and it's important to show up for that um, because they're watching how you do with the medication. Um, one thing that's a little bit different about venetoclax is there's a possibility to stop this medication um, earlier than the others, um, but this is a decision that's made on a case-by-case -case basis and requires a more in-depth conversation with your oncologist. It's also quite well tolerated. Um, the biggest issue with this are low blood counts, um, and these often correct as your CLL gets under better control. You can also have some mild nausea or uh, diarrhea with this medication, but overall pretty well tolerated. Um, as such, it's actually being combined, uh, compared to chlorambucil in another big study that we should hopefully hear about in the next couple of months. And again, this study is specifically dedicated to patients with other medical issues. So again, we're still focusing on patients with um, other chronic issues. So in some, we have a lot of drugs available. The key is just picking the best one for you based on your medical history and the potential side effects with the medication. And then the last thing I'll touch on is just reducing harmful drug interactions. Drug interactions can occur when two or more drugs react with each other um, as they're being broken down in your body. Um, your liver and your kidney are the two key organs for breaking down and filtering medications after your body. And sometimes this interaction between two drugs can result in you being exposed to too much of one drug. And as such, you may, um, it may result in you getting an unexpected side effect. So we really need to watch out for this. Whenever you start a new treatment, you must think about possible um, interactions. And this is true for drugs that are given by, uh, into the vein, but especially for those that are taken by mouth. 
Um, and this is a big issue for CLL because we're moving away from regular chemotherapy that's usually given over six months to these new drugs, which are given for a much longer period of time. So there's a greater chance of this drug interaction being an issue over the long run. So it's really important to keep an updated list of all your medications that you take, share it with your doctor and nurse. Um, it's especially important when your doctor is considering a new medication to treat your, your CLL. Similarly, if you're already on a medication for your CLL, but an, if another physician like your primary care doctor wants to start something, they need to check and make sure there's no interactions. It's also a good idea when you go to the pharmacy to pick up your medications, to check in with the pharmacist if they've picked up on anything. Um, if your pills are getting shipped to your house, you may not get that opportunity, but remember you can always call your doctor or your nurse to ask. There are some important drug interactions to be aware of. I mentioned earlier that abrutinib can increase the risk of bleeding. So if you're on other blood thinners or aspirin, um, make sure your doctor's aware and they can watch you very closely. Um, some blood pressure and heart medications can interact with abrutinib, so your doctors really need to know exactly what you're taking for your blood pressure and what you take for your heart. Um, medications that treat fungal infections can also interact with the abrutinib. And then even some herbal medications like St. John's wort can interact with either abrutinib or adelalisib. When in doubt, just make sure to ask your medical team and, and they can figure out um, if it's an issue or not. And I think this might be a good time to let Dr. Allen. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Johnny. That was really excellent and just wonderful um, review of, of really the logistics of how taking one's pills and, and the impact that they have on each other and just the logistics of how to add tips and how to really um, take those pills, pill box, all those details are very important for everybody. So thank you so much. And our next speaker is Dr. John Allen. Dr. Allen is Assistant Professor of Medicine, Division of Hematology and Medical Oncology, Law Cornell Medicine. And Dr. Allen is going to address new and emerging treatment approaches, the role of clinical trials, and creating the best treatment plan for you. It's now my pleasure to turn the program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Allen. Hello, everyone. So thank you to uh, the Cancer Care Network organizers for the invitation to me to come and speak to, to the patients and the families and caregivers and, and friends. And, and thank you, Jennifer and, and Chaitrat, for your introductions and your, your topics that you kind of have um, uh, laid out a nice uh, game plan for me to to talk about some of the the new and exciting things happening in the field of CLL. So this is uh, uh, one of the more exciting times uh, for us in the field as physicians that come back from our, one of our major conferences, the American Society of Hematology, uh, the ASH conference, which is just a couple you know a week and a half ago, and really sit down with our patients when they come in and 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 talk about some of the new exciting things that are kind of going on in the field and and uh, highlight the new directions and and really give a lot of hope to our patients and uh, a lot of excitement. And you know, I I'm, I always say that it, that I'm very fortunate to be a physician in this era to be able to treat patients, and that patients are also uh, very fortunate that we are living in this era now where we have access to all these new exciting drugs and all these new exciting uh, treatment uh, approaches. And so, uh, the first part that I want to highlight on is is what are some of these new and emerging treatment approaches? We had heard earlier, uh, you know, specifically just you know past week and a half. Uh, where for the first time we are measuring uh, the outcomes and the efficacy and the safety of these new drugs like ibrutinib, uh, specifically ibrutinib mostly, uh, but comparing them to, to chemotherapy for the, most, uh, for the first time. Uh, it's felt that these new drugs, these new pills were always going to be safer, but it was still unclear in a lot of people's minds how effective they might be comparatively to the standard of care chemoimmunotherapy. And there's two major studies that came out uh, with updated results with about median follow-ups of around three years that showed um, patients who were getting these new drugs uh, with ibrutinib actually had improved outcomes in terms of um, uh, their disease remaining at a at a quiet state longer than if they got uh, the chemotherapy approaches. Um, one was in an older patient population, one was in a younger patient population, but in both populations, these newer drugs like ibrutinib um, uh, proved to be uh, to, to have better uh, outcomes in terms of controlling the disease. And so that was exciting and provided some of the first evidence that a lot of us in the field thought, um, but we never really had that randomized 
data to really tell us that, that it is, in, in fact, uh, the case going forward. And so how this will implement and how the field will change will be interesting to see over the next uh, six months to a year to, to two years uh, to see how physicians adopt this new data. And so, so that's one thing to keep in mind and to ask your doctor about when you are being uh, told that you might be needing treatment and you're talking about different treatment options to, to ask them about these questions and, and to, to see which uh, treatment approach might be right for you. But I, in my opinion, and I think a lot of people's opinion in, in the field, is that we are really leaving uh, the chemotherapy approaches behind and that we are really trying to, to go towards these new treatments. And so that brings to the second point of, of that is that while these new regimens that we're using are typically in monotherapy um, drugs like ibrutinib, uh, I think a lot of us feel the, the future is really going towards combinations of these new drugs that Dr. Ujani had talked about and Dr. Bronner had talked about with uh, venetoclax and idelalisib and, and ibrutinib and using these drugs, specifically ibrutinib and venetoclax in combinations uh, to where we can use the benefits of each drug and, and, and synergize together to get really deep remissions and to address some of the problems with these monotherapy approaches is that um, it's continuous therapy. And so if we can use combinations of treatments, uh, we can induce very deep remissions and we can actually, for the first time at this meeting, started to see how people did long term after they stopped the drugs when they're in really deep remissions. And, and, if, and, and what a lot of the data shows is that if you are in a deep remission, it does appear that you can stop these drugs and the disease will remain quiescent and quiet and in low burden states for uh, seemingly a pretty long time, and we don't even know how long that is but um, uh, because patients are still being followed and it's still relatively early, but it's very, very encouraging that, that we're going to be able to potentially get away with this and, and patients will, quote-unquote, have maybe drug holidays for many years, maybe five, six, seven years possibly before their disease comes back. Um, and so I think that's one important uh, aspect to, to look for uh, going into the future. You know, while this is specifically talking about an older patient population, uh, by no means does that mean that these that this population would be excluded from these combinations of treatment because, uh, um, you know, some of the studies, are, you know, as as we stated before, uh, this is a disease of older patients, and and many of these studies are enrolling patients in their 80s and in their late 70s, and that might have some mild comorbidities. And so um, by no means is all this new, new, um, these new directions excluding patients that are uh, older that um, uh, they won't get, be able to get access to these new therapies. And so how that plays out still remains to be seen, but it is an exciting time because I think that is kind of where the future is going and where, where it's heading. Um, and combinations and finite durations and, and being able to stop patients. So we alleviate the cost issues. We alleviate um, continuous therapy. We alleviate potential toxicity, the long-term hypertension, the AFib issues with some of these drugs. And so, um, so that's something to look forward to in the next several years to really see how that changes and, and uh, how patients are, are really doing as more and more studies accrue more and more patients and, and more data comes out to kind of solidify this thinking. Um, additionally, there uh, at ASH we saw highlights of um, other targets uh, actually being um, identified uh, and new drugs being developed against those targets, now very early stages, but these are things that um, might be able to be in combinations and obviously we're always searching for a, a true cure of this disease and to get patients to really deep remissions. And so it's, it was exciting to see new targets, new antibody drug conjugate targets, uh, new molecules in combination with these drugs and it was really exciting to see some of the data coming out and, and again providing a lot of hope and a, and, a, and a bright horizon going forward for a lot of our patients and, and, and physicians taking care of these patients. And so so, uh, so that was exciting to see. Um, our, there was a, some data with CAR T-cell therapy, and again, with high conversion rates to deep remissions and patients doing really well. And there were some patients, uh, the, some of the very first patients reported um, ever getting CAR T-cells almost close to eight years ago still in remissions, a, a small subset of them. And so uh, really talking about how potentially effective these drugs might be and, and the power that they have. And really what we have to do now is just understand how to harness that power and to amplify it and to do it safely and to uh, uh, learn what are the best combinations and who are the best patients uh, for these types of approaches. 
And so that's kind of where uh, the field is moving towards with uh, a lot of these new exciting treatments and combinations. And that kind of brings me into the next point of my talk is the role of clinical trials. And I can't uh, emphasize enough is that uh, these uh, clinical trials are obviously how we are where we are. And so, you know, my bias is, is that if a patient is eligible and there is an attractive clinical trial that, that patients can uh, should strongly consider uh, enrolling on those because uh, it may give access to a new drug that um, provides provides a lot of benefit very early on. And, uh, you know, and, and, and it can be done in frontline settings where you haven't had a previously treatment, and, and those are usually less risky in, in the sense that a lot of those drugs will be approved drugs, and now they're going to be in new combinations, and we know the safety of a lot of those. And so that takes away a lot of this um, question on patients and, you know, is this an unknown drug? So a lot of these combination uh, therapies are being done in treatment-naive patients. Um, and then likewise, obviously, if you are in a relapsed or refractory setting, where your disease has progressed after these new treatments, um, that is really where a lot of the, the breakthroughs are first discovered um, and that these patients, uh, especially if they are progressing on these new treatments, uh, our definition of what is high risk is continuing to change with these new therapies. What we used to think was high risk doesn't appear to be so high risk anymore when you use these new treatments. And so when we do see people, patients progress on these drugs, this is becoming new, the new definition. And we don't quite understand why all patients progress on these drugs. Uh, there are some mechanisms of action uh, that are recognized and understood on why patients progress on these drugs, but there are still uh, a large majority of uh, patients that we don't quite know. And so understanding that obviously comes through patients enrolling on clinical trials, and, and especially if we're in a situation where the disease is progressing on these drugs, these patients are, are spe specifically ideal to enroll on studies um, because we are now having um, studies where we're actually targeting these mechanisms of action that uh, are causing the resistance, and new drugs are being developed against uh, fighting BTK mutations, uh, so to speak, uh, or, or venetoclax um, uh, progressors through what we believe uh, by targeting other proteins that get upregulated um, in, in patients who progress on that drug. And so these are, uh, these are new drugs. They are early stages, but they require courageous patients and, and, and um, um, physicians to identify the right patient to, to enroll on that in order to push the science forward, in order to, to push these discoveries forward, in order to, to change the world, which we've done recently in the past you know, five to ten years with these new drugs. Um, and once they've been approved in one indication, they start to trickle down into other things. And so it starts to have a very, very large effect. And so that, that's why the, the trials are really, really important, and obviously nothing gets uh, discovered or really pushed ahead or breakthroughs are made unless, unless we obviously have these courageous patients that are able to, to, um, uh, to take a, maybe a little bit of a risk and, and to enroll in order to, to, to get a better therapy for themselves and as well as others that may follow. And so, so that's the importance of these clinical trials. And, you know, Jennifer and, and uh, Dr. Brown and Dr. Ujani and myself are all um, – um, are all very well versed, and we at our centers we all have a lot of trials, and so seeking out um, experts in the field is always a good thing to do, especially if if your disease is progressing on some of these uh, new drugs. Um, and then that kind of just brings me to the last section really quickly, and how how do you create the best treatment? So for the first time, uh, we we actually have a lot of options now. We have a lot of new drugs that are. Um, uh, all seemingly equally effective, and so how do you start to, to choose which one to use? And I think Dr. Ujani had touched on that a little bit, is that um, these drugs all have over non-overlapping toxicities, meaning uh, they all have different toxicities. One drug can cause this that the other drug doesn't, but that one drug has another issue that you have to deal with that the other drug doesn't, and so on and so forth. And so um, as these drugs are all essentially approved for the same line of treatments um, and or will be in the near future, uh, the physicians are going to have options on which drug to recommend and how do you do that. And, and really it's going to come down to um, patient characteristics essentially. Uh, if you've got cardiac disease, fall risk, or you've had bleeding, you know, maybe a BTK inhibitor may not be your best option because that is associated with AFib and, and bleeding. 
uh, if you've got some renal disease and you've got bulky lymph nodes that uh, um, you know, your kidney may not be functioning that well, uh, a drug like venetoclax may not be the best option right up front. And so, so you'd start to look at these um, uh, different toxicities and then the patient characteristics and you start to, to identify which drug might be best for that patient. Additionally, understanding a little bit about the molecular biology of the, sub, uh, the patient's disease is, is going to be important too. Um, high-risk patients, we may want to really get deep, rapid clearance of the drug and may want to use a, a specific drug such like venetoclax or a specific combination to, to induce that uh, because the BTK inhibitors don't really get rapid reduction. And, and if you've got really high-risk disease, you really want to kind of get rid of it and contain it as quickly as possible so it stops kind of changing over time. And so all of these little things go into factors, and that's really where it comes into talking with your physician, your, your treating doctor, um, also talking with a doctor uh, who may be um, experienced using these drugs because uh, not all doctors uh, may be experienced using these drugs. And so, um, you know, it's, it's good to seek, seek that out if you, if you have any questions about that. Um, and uh, even if you're, you know, if you live far away from a major center, you can come in for a consultation, but you can still get treatment locally. It's type of thing like that. But, you, you know, you should seek information out. And I always encourage patients to seek out other opinions, whether it's from me, from other people, from other, you know, my own patients. And so I think uh, information is your best friend and there is a lot of it out there and you really need to hear it from from people who have a lot of experience with these drugs and and that that's the best way to really um, ensure that you're going to have the best treatment plan for you going forward and so um, you know I think I'll stop there I know we're getting kind of close to the hour here and and I know uh, hearing your questions is is actually probably the most important of all of this uh, uh, of this conference so I'll, I'll turn it over to um, to the to the group Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Allen. Uh, that was wonderful. And actually, the concept of information is your friend. That's really an important um, motto for everybody to have take away from the call as well. And, and the information you provided as well is just invaluable. And we do have um, our next speaker is um, Patricia Kaufman. And Patricia Kaufman is a co-founder and executive director of the CLL Society, Inc. And she's going to tell you a little bit about their um, their programs and services. And, sh and we are partnering with them on this particular program. So, um um, without further ado, I, it's my pleasure to um, turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, um, Ms. Kaufman. The CLL Society is here to help with a website full of patient-friendly resources. Whether you are newly diagnosed or have been a CLL patient for a very long time, our learning tools will meet you at any stage in your disease process. We teach, we explain, and we connect. We know that smart patients get smart care, so we've developed tools to make you a smarter patient. As media, we cover all the major hematology conferences where we interview the world's top CLL researchers on cutting-edge advances in treatment options, and we explain what this research means to CLL patients. We demystify CLL terminology in our glossary of terms. We cut through the confusion with our sections on acronyms and abbreviations so that you can acquire an understanding of the language of CLL. Got your lab results from your healthcare provider, but you don't know what they mean? Compare them to our chart of normal lab values to understand what they mean. Let us connect you with other CLL patients. The CLL Society has more than 25 CLL-specific support groups meeting monthly across the country, and 10 more are currently forming. Plan to attend one of our 12 upcoming patient educational forums. This is where we gather the best minds in CLL to provide you with a half-day, in-depth look at the many facets of CLL treatment. If you are one of those patients who does not have access to a CLL expert, please come to our website and apply to be considered as a candidate for our no-cost expert access program. We have dozens of openings currently available. The research and short surveys that we do on our website become your voice, informing healthcare providers, CLL researchers, and the pharmaceutical industry as to what CLL patients really want in their treatment. Visit our website today to get the kind of knowledge that strengthens your ability to advocate on your own behalf for the best possible care for your CLL. 
Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Kaufman. That was really amazing. And it's a wonderful resource for all of you if you haven't used it. Particularly, um, I would very much recommend the Seattle Society's free expert access program as well as their patient support groups. They're wonderful. And now our last speaker is Ms. Sarah Kelly. She's an oncology social worker and clinical supervisor at Cancer Care. And Ms. Kelly will describe Cancer Care's free psychosocial programs and services and the role of support groups. It's now my pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Kelly. Thank you, Dr. Messner. So um, really what we've been talking about today um, is managing your care and managing your quality of life. And so I'd like to begin by speaking about the importance of creating a support network as part of that care and how cancer care can be a part of your network. So a little bit about us. Uh, cancer Care is a national nonprofit organization. We provide free professional support services to anyone affected by cancer. Our programs include individual counseling. We do that face-to-face -face in the New York area and then also do it over the phone nationally. We have support groups, which we also provide face-to-face -face in New York, over the phone nationally, and then online also nationally. We have education programs like the one that we're on today. We also provide practical help, so assistance navigating the healthcare system, and we do provide some limited financial assistance. All of our services are provided by licensed master's level oncology social workers. And they're, as I said before, completely free of charge. And an oncology social worker really is trained in how a diagnosis of cancer affects a person and his or her family and friends. We're also trained to help cancer patients and their supports tackle problems that accompany the disease. So uh, financial demands, which I know we talked a little bit about on the call today, just physical changes, social adjustment, and psychological impact in care. And I think that adjusting to and finding ways of coping with the diagnosis in all the areas I just mentioned is an important part of the healing process, and I actually consider it to be a part of treatment. You know, cancer affects uh, the patient, but also it affects the entire support network, friends, family, and loved ones. Asking for help, whether you are a patient or you are a loved one, um, by joining a support group or contacting a social worker for counseling can be so helpful. You know, one of the things I'd like for you to take with you today is that you don't have to walk this path alone. In joining a support group, you're able to connect with others who are going through something similar or experiencing similar uh, issues. In the individual counseling, you have a space that's just yours to voice any of uh, concerns you may have and navigate the issues that I mentioned earlier. And the connections can help lessen the isolation um, that many people with cancer experience and that you may be experiencing as well. And feeling well emotionally um, can help you better manage the diagnosis and the treatment. And so at this time, I'm just going to share a little bit about the supports we have. As I mentioned, we do provide the individual counseling face-to-face -face in New York and over the phone uh, nationally. We also have an online support group um, for anyone who is diagnosed with a blood cancer. And you can find that information by going to our website, which is www.cancercare.org. And then we also provide um, both uh, patient and caregiver groups. So we do that online. Uh, we also have caregiver groups over the phone, a general patient group on the phone, and then both of those types of groups face-to-face uh, -face in the New York area. If you're interested in any of our services, please call our HOPELINE. And that's 1-800-813-HOPE. Uh, or 1-800-813-4673. You can also visit our website, which I mentioned earlier, which is www.cancercare.org. And that's actually a really good place to start. It's very comprehensive. You can find a lot of information, not only on support, but on all of our programs, as well as on your diagnosis and treatment and just ways of coping as you go through this. Um, this was a very robust program. We learned a lot from today's program, and there's a lot of information to digest and get your arms around. Um, you know, I do love what Dr. Allen said about that information is your bre uh, best friend. Um, so know that we're here to help you understand what it means for you and your loved ones. If you have any questions about today's workshop or about our services, don't hesitate to contact us. And then lastly, um, I really just want to remind you that you're not alone in this. You don't have to walk the path alone. Our services are here to help. Th thanks so much for your attention and the opportunity to talk to you today.
Oh, thanks so much, Ms. Kelly. That was wonderful. And now we have time for questions. And we have time for lots of questions. I'm going to ask um, Crystal to explain to you how to queue up for questions. And please bring all of our speakers on board. And we'll take as many of your questions as possible. If we don't get your questions, I will give you guidance of how to get your questions answered after the call if we don't get your question. Crystal? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star, then 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. And our first question comes from Allison S. Your line is open. Hello. Um, I'd like to know more about PT73 and its effect um, on the person who has it. Um, I need more information about it. Okay, thank you. Um, uh, Dr. Brown, could you address that question? I'm not sure I quite understood it. Do you mean TP53 or 17P? Did anyone else understand? Crystal, could you? It, was, it wasn't that clear. It was a, um, I think on speakerphone. Um, Allison, could we come back? And, um, Crystal, and Allison, your line is reopened. Could you just yes. say seventeen yeah. P or was it P fifty seven? Some more information. Right, it's P fifty three or seventeen P. That's right. So right, so seventeen P refers to loss of the short arm of chromosome seventeen in the CLL cells, and that affects a gene called P fifty three. And so it causes loss of a copy of the P fifty three gene. But it's also possible to separately have a mutation of the p53 gene. When we talk about this, we tend to lump it all together uh, because it all affects this p53 gene. And historically, especially with chemoimmunotherapy regimens, when we had those, that this sort of subgroup of CLL was recognized as not responding as well to chemoimmunotherapy. It's important to recognize that it was really that response to treatment because a significant proportion of people with whose CLL has one of these mutations can actually go for a while without needing treatment. This was shown by a study from the MD Anderson and Mayo Clinic. And so if you don't meet those criteria for treatment, as I mentioned in the earlier part of the call, even if you have a 17P or P53, you still don't get treated, and it could be years before you're treated. But historically, the chemoimmunotherapy regimens didn't work as well for that subgroup of CLL. Now, with these newer drugs, the abrutinib and the venetoclax and the adelolisib, we still get very, very good responses, even with P53. The response rates are as high as uh, even without it. Now, there is some suggestion that the duration of response may not be quite as long for a subset of people uh, with that 17P, even with the new drugs. But many people can have quite long responses. So the significance of that is not quite as much as it used to be, especially if you've not been treated before. If you're starting to have more treatments and this comes up later, then sometimes, you know, it would definitely be a situation where we might favor a clinical trial where you could get multiple of the drugs or uh, consider uh, options that are adding on efficacy, like Dr. Allen mentioned, uh, the possibility of sort of getting more rapid, deeper responses and trying to reduce the likelihood of resistance. But there's lots and lots of options, and the drugs that we have now work much better than the old ones. Thank you. Um, and a question uh, for Dr. Ajani um, from one of our online participants. I tend to get very bad sinus infections. Nothing will conquer them except antibiotics. I fear taking antibiotics two or more times a year is not wise, but nothing else will get rid of them. Any advice? Could you comment on that question in a general way, Dr. Ajani? Sure. Um, so patients with CLL, their immune system can be affected not only by the CLL, but also by some of the treatments for the CLL. Um, and the way that is is because um, the body's ability to make natural antibodies is um, decreased when you have CLL. And if that's the case, sometimes this can result in um, um, a lot of infections. They can often be sinus infections or pneumonias. And if you're having issues with recurrent sinus infections, um, one of the things to talk about with your doctor is what are your 
immunoglobulin levels or antibody levels, because if they're low, um, there are some ways that your doctor can think to strategize around that to prevent you from having future infections going forward. Excellent. Thank you. And um, next question um, for Dr. Allen. Um, I was diagnosed with WM and CLL after I got the old shingle shot. Is it okay for me to get the new Shingrix? And again, it's a good answer in a general way. Yeah, so, so um, you know, if you got the previous one, you didn't know you had uh, one of these uh, lymphoproliferative disorders, it's okay to do. Uh, it's not like a complete contraindication. You know, if you get a live vaccine, it's not 100% that you will contract uh, the actual uh, disease that that vaccine is is trying to protect you against, but obviously patients with these lymphoproliferative disorders have a decreased immune system, as, we, as we've just heard from from Dr. Johnny and we've heard throughout the the call. Um, so we do not typically recommend our patients with these lymphoproliferative disorders to ever get a uh, a live vaccine. Uh, with that being said, I, uh, my understanding that even if you don't have CLL or Waldenstrom's or a lymphoproliferative disorder is that even if you've had Zostafax, which was the previous live vaccine, uh, that you are still being recommended uh, to get the new Shingrix uh, vaccine. That is my understanding. I could be wrong. So uh, it is uh, still okay, as we heard earlier, that this new vaccine is, is inactivated. It is not a live virus. And, and so, therefore, we do commonly, I, I commonly recommend our patients to get it. Uh, it seems like Dr. Brown is recommending her patients to get it. And, and so, um, you know, given the fact that even if you had the Zostafax prior to, to um, you know, developing your illness, uh, it would still be okay and typically and still even recommended to go ahead and get this new inactivated form of the, of the vaccine, which is the Shringrix uh, uh, shot, which actually is one shot. Two at least two months apart. So it's two. It's a two-shot series, uh, one shot at least two months apart, and you do two shots, and then you're kind of done. Excellent. Thank you. And a question from one of our online participants for Dr. Brown. Um, in addition to my being in the watch and wait category for CLL, um, I have also been diagnosed with Mycobacterium avium complex (MAC) and Mycobacterium abscesses, with treatment pending for these diseases. Um, which disease is treated first or are all treated simultaneously? It's a general question. If you could just address it in a general way. Right. So I, I generally always would treat any infections that are active as needed at the time they're diagnosed and more or less regardless of the CLL. It isn't always the case that you need to treat the CLL if you're diagnosed with another infection. Uh, as we heard, sometimes people with recurrent sinus infections, recurrent bacterial infections can get immunoglobulin infusions, and that can very much help with that. The treatments that we have have variable effects on immune function, which we don't fully understand. And there has been some suggestion that ibrutinib may help restore some normal immune function, but that's not we still see significant infections in patients who are on ibrutinib, uh, just as we did with chemoimmunotherapy. So I think even with the new agents, I still would not necessarily move to treatment as a specific way of improving immune function unless it's needed for other reasons, which sometimes we do see that, that as the disease progresses toward treatment, we see increase in, in infections. And then that, together with the disease progressing, becomes a reason for treatment. And um, um, we just have one or two more questions. And um, we have a, a question now for um, Dr. Jani. Um, can you please talk about myelofibrosis connection to CLL? My partner has MFL and C with CLL cells, maybe more myelofibrosis conversion to CLL, um, special treatment options. So the um, patient um, is currently on Jacophy, um with many side effects and recurrent UTI. Any advice? Again, this would be uh, general information that they could take back to the healthcare team. Um, sure. So I don't normally think of myelofibrosis 
as a precursor to CLL or a consequence to CLL. Typically, we see it in association with other types of leukemia, like acute myeloid leukemia. I invite my colleagues, Dr. Brown and Dr. Allen, to jump in if they have seen any connection with the t with, between the two, but I would think it's more uh, two different diagnoses, um, and it may be that the CLL has just been picked up, and that's mainly a low-grade process. I'm not sure. It would really depend on what the bone marrow biopsy looked like and require a deeper look into uh, the patient's history. Okay. Would anyone else like to comment on that as well? Or? No, I agree. It's just very specific to a given individual and not necessarily related. Um, and um, I think this will be our last question for Dr. Allen. Um, uh, so lymphocytes originate in the bone marrow. Most doctors on the call mentioned several pills as treatment for CLL. How do the treatments move into the bone marrow to attack cancer cells there? Yeah, so so these uh, these drugs that we're using, these are pills, and, and so when you take them in, uh, your body will break them down in the gut, and you absorb them. And when they dissociate, they dissociate into, you know, millions, hundreds of millions, billions of small molecules, basically, that then go throughout the body. And, and essentially, as the blood filters through the body, which it filters basically through every part of our body, through every capillary, through every vein, through every artery, um, it, it will disseminate throughout the body. And so our bone marrow is actually very vascular and that um, it is one of the major areas where blood will, will flow. And so these drugs and, and really any drug that we take in uh, will disseminate in that manner. And so regardless of where the bone, uh, the, the CLL cells are, if they're deep in a lymph node, uh, if they are in the bone marrow, if they're circulating in the blood, they will get exposed to these uh, to these drugs because these these drugs are extraordinarily small. I mean, these you, uh, they are molecular sized um, uh, molecules, and so these can filter in little tiny gaps within our veins and our capillaries and, and all of these areas and, and disseminate into the tissue uh, to where the cells then will take them up or it diffuses just within inside of the cell. And, and because there's so many of them, of these molecules floating around, it's able to inhibit the multiple proteins uh, that are within that, that specific cell and inhibit all of the proteins and knock them all out. And so um, regardless of where the disease is, the, all of these drugs essentially work the same. They diffuse throughout. They're all extraordinarily small and molecular and, and essentially are being able to take, be taken up by, by all of the, um, the cancer cells. Um, and usually, preferentially, the cancer cells, because there are usually more of them, specifically in CLL, uh, and so they, it acts kind of like a sink a little bit and to where those cells take up the, 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 the molecules even more so because there's just more of them. And, and, and so um, uh, these cells are also very, the cancer cells are also very dependent on the proteins that the molecules inhibit. So even though these molecules may get into normal, normal cells, the normal cells either one, don't have the protein that the drug inhibits, so therefore they, it has no real toxic effect on it, or two, if the cell uses that specific protein, um, it does it at such a lower lower level than the CLL cancer cell that it kind of doesn't really affect it and doesn't cause a toxicity to the cell or cause it to die. And so it's really the how we use these drugs is that we you know kind of exploit the addiction of these CLL cancer cells to certain pathways, to certain proteins, to certain um, uh, disrupted abnormalities. Um, and, and use these, these drugs to inhibit those very specific pathways. And so because of that addiction, it requires uh, for survival when you shut it off, it is very, very sensitive to where the normal cells who aren't addicted don't really use the pathway that much. If you shut it off, it kind of doesn't care, and the cell can survive, and, and, and there's no toxicity. So that's how uh, these drugs have low toxicities, and that's how they um, kind of kill preferentially to, to the CLL cancer cell. Okay, excellent. Thank you. That's a wonderful answer. And um, I'm actually, Dr. Brown, if I may ask you this one last question that just popped in, which I think probably would be an answer that you could give quickly. And if one needs surgery, what is the protocol if you are on a brutinib? Or is it going to general answer to that question? 
Right. So if it's a significant surgery, you need to stop the abrutinib seven days before and not resume it till seven days after. So it's seven days before and seven days after for a total of 14 days off. For more minor things that don't involve um, stitches, uh, things like a colonoscopy, for example, may just hold a couple of days before, and then if they don't even biopsy anything or take anything out, you can start again right after. If they do, wait another couple of days. So, But it's something, just bring it to the attention of uh, your doctor with the details of the procedure, and you can get some nuance within that. But you definitely have to hold the drug, as I was saying. I want to thank our speakers. You've just been phenomenal. Um, I thank you for your being on this call. Um, I also want to thank all of you who've been listening to the call, all of you participating, all of you who've asked such great questions that enhance the call. And um, I just want to wrap up the call at this point. I know there are many more of you who have questions. We could easily stay on the, the rest of the evening, but of course we can't do that. And so I want to give you resources to get your questions answered. Um, even if you asked a question, by the way, today, please actually um, go back to treating health your team and discuss it with them as well. And um, we're also going to send you an evaluation form at the end of the program. Whether you complete the evaluation form or not, you're still going to get all the different resources all the different blood cancer organizations that you can access. And I do want to actually stress, of course, the CLL Society, just because that's, they, they only specialize in CLL in terms of their, um, their um, information materials and things like that. So it might be a nice place for you to contact. Um, also, they do have um, that uh, wonderful program where they do have that free expert access program and um, very specific groups around CLL. So I, I, I would definitely recommend that as a resource as well. And I always recommend that people contact the National Cancer Institute. They have both a website and they have a, 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 call, a call center with a 800 number. Um, given the fact that our audience is from all over the world and all over the United States, um, sometimes you may, some of you may prefer a website, some may prefer a phone number. Um, however, the website does have a live chat feature where you can post your question and they will then, the information specialist will get you information. So that's a great resource as well. Um, again, um, as we conclude the program today, I would not want any one of you, as Ms. Kelly had said, to feel alone. You are now part of this huge conglomerate of services for you, your healthcare team. But in addition to that, all of these organizations that can really help you. Um, you'll get a listing of those resources. Um, I would start with um, certainly the CLL Society at Cancer Care, just to start with because they are very specific to what you need, um, and then branch out. They will each tell you where else you need to branch out to. Again, I want to thank you all for being on this call today, and I want to wish you a very fine day. Thank you. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.